would you turn your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament, the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus. We'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. As you hike up the Red Sea Hills, you overlook a wasteland. The Nile River cuts its way through this barren desert wasteland. But as, as you look closer, as far as the eyes can see, the only vegetation is along the banks of the River Nile. And what grows gives hope to the land of life and food and, and people just for miles around. Because for thousands of years, people have built their hope and growth that gives life from the precious river water. As that Nile runs its way through all the way to the sea, the river spreads out with many fingers. And it makes that whole valley fertile. The valley is one of the premier places to live on the entire continent. Today, you would see everything north of the great city of Cairo green and lush and prosperous. 3,500 years ago, though, the Crescent Valley was called Goshen. It was a fertile land. And as you pull out your binoculars from your day pack and you kind of zero in on really what's going on in that valley, you see thousands of small houses. Really, they're just shacks. They're built out of mud bricks and stone scattered in villages throughout the land. As you look a little closer, you see an orange haze that hangs in the air. It's the smoke of countless charcoal fires. And if you were there, you would smell smoked meat and simmering stews on this red-hot charcoal fire. It's mostly peaceful now after a long, hard day in Egypt. But there is an anticipation of a new chapter in God's story. And suddenly, you hear a voiceover that sets the stage for one of the greatest stories ever told. Verse 1. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Essachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, 
and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And this is the beginning of one of the greatest stories of redemption and of love and of sacrifice and of salvation that's ever been told. In Hollywood, you see film production companies that have tried to capture the emotion and the drama and the tension and the victory on the big screen. In Nova, you have picked a great day to watch online, to be in our outdoor venue, or to be here indoors. We're starting a new sermon series on the book of Exodus. And this won't be like the Paramount Studios version, or Cecil B. DeMille, or DreamWorks, or Pixar, or Sony Studios, the way they would produce it. But it'll unfold before us verse by verse through the Scriptures. And we'll ask questions like, who are these people anyways? And what is this place? What's the context? And what's the time period? And what's going on in the background? But in a real way, this is not the beginning of the story. It's part two. Part one, in the very beginning, is Genesis. And today we're beginning part two of the story in Exodus. Verse one says, these are the names of the sons of Israel. In the Hebrew Bible, though, in chapter one, verse one, it begins with the word and. You don't start a book with and unless there's something before it. And so Thomas is going to take us there from the very beginning. Genesis is my jam, if you guys don't know. The students know. <laughs> All right, so Genesis is the beginning, and we're headed to this moment that Dean described here in Exodus. And it's here in Exodus that we are seeing the Israelites fully alive in this moment right before the story starts. They're in Egypt in this region named Goshen, which is the best land in Egypt, according to the Pharaoh of Genesis 45:17, where he says to Joseph, I will give you the best land of Egypt and then you can enjoy the fat of the land. So it's like the, uh, the A5 Wagyu beef of Egypt, the cream of the crop. Exodus 1, 7, describes them as thriving. They're doing good. It says that the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them, which is the exact ideal state and purpose that God gave to humanity right in the beginning of Genesis. Right as God is creating human beings in Genesis 1, 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And so they're doing it. And there are multiple links to this throughout Genesis. Uh, but this is one of the core themes that carries through Genesis into Exodus and then into the rest of the Bible, humans being fruitful, which is specifically about 
being alive, alive to the fullest potential, multiplying as the sign of life like a, like a fruit tree, which is, oddly enough, an extremely connected metaphor because when they're in a literally fruitful land, the people are fruitful. The setting and the characters are intertwined in God's good world. All of his creation is to be fruitful. And I could get really nerdy about it because it is a super cool theme, but I will simply say this. Uh, the word in Hebrew that means seed, like plants yielding seed, is the same word as offspring or descendant, referring to people. And that word is used in both ways, all over Genesis especially. And it's really cool. But let's simplify it to just say that when the people are in a fruitful land, they're fruitful. And both are a sign of what God created us for, to live in security and abundance with God providing all that we need, and then to live and thrive and grow as people. And so at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, we have that. But then it goes wrong. Adam and Eve are in the fruitful garden, and these first humans try to seize life on their own terms, with this evil force tempting them to go a different way, scheming to stop God's good plan, pulling them in this different path there in Genesis 3. And it's, it's a pattern that we see again and again in Genesis, with sin crouching at the door, saying, ah, abundant life is what you want. Take it this way. It's not the way that God wants this different way. And eventually this different way fills the world with an incredible amount of violence, all in the name of our own desires, seeking abundant life on our own terms, where we say, I'll take life even if it means you don't get yours. And it got so bad that in Genesis 6, God brings down a flood to start over, to begin again. But then human beings get right back to it. And then in Genesis 11, they're building this tower that's supposed to reach the heavens so that, you know, maybe you'll reach the gods. Maybe you'll become immortal or at least have your name go down in the history books, just grasping for eternal life, whatever the cost. And God looks on the city that built the tower he knows he has a lost cause on his hands, but instead of giving up, he says in Genesis 12, we'll begin again. And he chooses one family, Abraham and Sarah, and says, I'm starting over with you. And it's through you we're going to fix the world. And like Adam and Eve, it's going to start with you being fruitful. The problem is, they aren't. And they're really old. So how are they going to do it? Well, they do their own grasping at straws at the beginning of the story, and they abuse their slave in search of continued life because they don't trust God in his way, but are trying to do it on their own terms. But thankfully, God already knew that he had a lost cause when he started, so he just keeps at it. And miraculously, he provides them a son. And through that son, more sons. All of which are lost causes that keep doing really silly things. And by silly things, I mean sin. 
And by sin, I mean disobeying God, especially in ways that really hurt other people. Because there is this force that has been tempting humanity, luring them away from God's way, taking them from this abundant life that God has for them, and deceiving them into thinking that this other way leads to a better life. But it's really all leading to death. And so they lie, kill, steal repeatedly. And when it comes to the family of Abraham, of whom God has said it is through your offspring that the world will be blessed, it seems like they just keep getting obstacle after obstacle thrown at them, much of it through their own silliness, which again is their sin. But it leaves us wondering, as we're in the middle of the story, is this going to work? Will this lost cause make it through? How are they going to survive, let alone bless the world? And then we get to Joseph, who is the great-grandson of Abraham, and his brothers give in to their silliness and throw their brother into a pit, lie to their father, and sell their brother into slavery because they were jealous of them. Perfect. Every sibling in the room right now is like, well, I probably wouldn't sell my brother into slavery. That's too far. But the pit thing? Don't test me. <laughs> but it is through this, it's through their sin and a wild turn of events that Joseph becomes second in charge of the nation of Egypt. And he uses his power to literally bless the world. He makes sure that the nation stores food for the upcoming famine, and then the whole world gets to eat because of what he did. It's a moment of fruitfulness in a world of famine. And then his whole family, the whole family of Abraham, they settle into Egypt, into the choicest of lands, the land of Goshen. And they are thriving, multiplying, being fruitful, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we're back to the beginning of the story, just in a different setting this time. And the question is, as always, what's going to happen next? Is there going to be some kind of evil force that tries to stop them yet again? And so as Joseph passes away at the end of Genesis, we are left in the shoes of Abraham's multiplying family, settled into this land. And the last verse of the last chapter of Genesis reads, So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Turn the page to Exodus. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then the roll call of the sons of Israel echoes on. In verse 6 in Exodus chapter 1, it says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So for 400 years, Egypt becomes this, this greenhouse, this human incubator for the Hebrew nation. God has moved his people 
away from their homeland to provide and to protect and to increase in number and to multiply. And in this time, the Egyptians, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh, the king, is God. And they saw themselves as the only pure race. So they would not intermarry with any other people group. So what we have here is the people of God living and multiplying in the fertile valley of Goshen, in the middle of the Egyptian empire. Verse 8, Exodus 1. And then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. So take your pens, get your Bibles, make a note right here. Circle that phrase, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Draw a box around it, a star, point an arrow, highlight it, do whatever you need to do to remember that. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, ironically, the Egyptians, in the time of Joseph, gave the people of God the best land. It was their place of hope and growth and abundance and safety and prosperity and success and security. But this very people in this very land turns against them. And now the people of the Hebrew nation are their enemies and slaves and objects of wrath, hated and treated ruthlessly. I think we need to take a side note here. I think we need to, to, to just think about this a little bit. I think there's a warning here to us to be careful and not to put all of your hope in things that are temporary. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in the, in the book of Colossians in chapter 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Israel was secure and prosperous and protected from enemies. But now everything turned because there's a new Pharaoh in town who does not remember Joseph. And it, it's, it's almost like you want to kind of call out to Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, it only took 400 years for, to, for you to forget who saved you. Because remember, in the history of Egypt, Joseph was the one who saved you from famine and made you into a wealthier nation than you could ever imagine. And so I think a good question is, how could you forget? How could you forget the one who saved you? 
I think it's a good question for us. Today, it's a good question for us. I tend to forget when things are going well and the living is easy, when my life is peaceful, and when I put all my security in temporary things, I begin to take God for granted. And now I'm not saying that Christ followers should be walking around fearful and looking for failure and doom around every corner. But I need to be constantly reminded of the gospel, my salvation, so I don't forget my salvation. The Apostle Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, is what he writes. In verse 2 he says, By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. He's saying, this is number one. This is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. We can't forget our salvation. In chapter 1, we have the beginning of the Exodus. We know the backstory that Thomas gave us in about six minutes, the whole book of Genesis. Now let's take a look at just a snapshot of what life was like back then when you're living with the enemy. Verse 15, it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Because the girls could serve us, is what the king was thinking. The midwives, however, feared God. Underline that. Put a star next to that. They feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh. I mean, think about that. This is the king. This is the ruthless guy, right? He gave them orders. And the midwives answered, Pharaoh? Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Egyptian women, they're, they're soft. They need that special labor and delivery room. They need doulas all around. Doula landinos all around, right? Feeding them peeled grapes and fanning them as they're in labor. The Hebrew women, working in the fields, oh, gonna have that baby sit on that stool, okay, done, wrap them up, work in the fields again, right? I mean, they go too fast, Pharaoh. We can't kill them. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. They feared God. Make a note of that again. 
when Pharaoh gave this order, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh basically said, we will eradicate the Jewish race in one generation. And with a, within a generation without Jewish boys, the Hebrew nation will die out. And maybe this is the first time, but it's not the last time in history that a people group claiming to be the perfect race will try to eliminate the Jewish people. Now, if Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the known world, wants to wipe you out, you, you don't have much hope. That's a fact. But add God to the story in the fact is now being changed to faith. Now, there's so much. There's so much we need to get to still. I mean, you, if you know the story, if you've seen the movie, there's baby Moses in the basket that gets floated down the river. There's the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the wandering in the wilderness. But we're going to stop here today. And the question I've asked myself as I've read through chapter 1 Really, there's just one question for us in putting together this message is, what's the lesson of chapter 1? What is, what is our lesson here? And I, I thought of this. How do we live in this world that feels like a war sometimes? How do we live in our world today as the people of God? That's our, that's our question. That's our lesson today. Um, in, in 1 John chapter 5, we just went through a series in, in 1 John. In, in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 18, it says this, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to, to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. And John was writing to a people that were living in a culture that was at war with the people of God. I, I see here in verse 19, I ask myself, who is the evil one? Who is the enemy? And in verse 19, we see this. And in verse 18, I, I, asked, I have to ask myself, who is the one who was born of God, who keeps us safe? And the evil one cannot harm us. Because that's what we're faced with today in our world. How do we live in this world as the people of God? First point here, how do we do this? Is know the enemy. We need to know the enemy. In our polarizing current culture, it's either you're this way or you're that way. You're this color or that color. You're right or you're left. You know, you're, you, you have or you don't. In our polarizing culture, it's so confusing lately. And there's so much content and there's so much information going out. And we have to keep asking ourselves, is this the truth? When I, when I read about something, is this the truth or is this a lie? Am I being lied to right now or is this true? And I have to ask myself, who is the enemy? In 1 P 
Peter chapter 5, it, it describes the enemy. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and sober mind, in a sober mind. Your enemy, who is the enemy? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This is not unusual what we're experiencing now, but it's important to know who the enemy is. Let's be very clear today. The enemy is not a person. The enemy to us is not people. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The enemy wants to kill your hope and your peace. He wants to steal away your love of those who are most dear to you. He wants to wreak havoc with your mind and your thoughts and your emotions, casting doubt in your life, telling you lies, bringing up fears and anxiety and worry. He wants to kill your joy. He wants to kill your contentment and your purpose. Why does the enemy want to steal kill and destroy it's not about you get over yourselves it's not about you the enemy is after you because he hates your heavenly father and when you hate a father that you can't touch you go after the kids you are the pinnacle of God's creation made in his image and you are loved by the creator God and that's why the enemy delights in messing with you. We read in the book of beginnings, in the first chapter, in verse 27, that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created you. Male and female, he created you. You were sought after. You were loved. And therefore, the people of God seek and love God but there are also some who are deceived by the enemy and run from God and choose not to love the one who loved them and created them in his image Jesus said this he said you've heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemy he says but I tell you love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And others may be under the belief system of the enemy, and they may feel like they, and, and they may look like the enemy in your life, but people are not the enemy. There might be a bully at school that raises havoc in your life. He's not the enemy. There might be a mean coworker or a boss that you have that's so disagreeable. Not the enemy. Number one, know who the enemy is. It's not people. Number two, know who's in charge. It's so important. The people of God need to know who's in charge. 
And how do I stay connected to Him? If we want to thrive in this world as a people of God, and we want to fight for people instead of fighting against people, we need to be crystal clear on who God is. And how do you stay closely connected to Him? I have to be about His business, not about my business. It's, it's easy for us to kind of look back as we read the Bible. I mean, we, we, we look in Genesis and the story of Joseph and, and you know, sold to the Egyptians by his brothers, imprisoned there. But he's a, a dream interpreter, and the king has this great dream that no one can interpret. And so they pull Joseph out of jail and clean him up a little and, and bring him to the king. The king tells him the dream, and Joseph interprets that dream and says, a famine's going to come, and here's the plan. I think we should follow this plan. And then Joseph gets reunited with his father and brothers. The brothers are pretty upset about that, like, oh, I don't want to go to Egypt. That's where we sold Joseph, right? But the father says, no, we're doing this. And Joseph gets reunited, and he says, my family. And then Egypt gives him the choice land. And they're thriving in the land, but then a new king comes on board, and then baby Moses, and we kind of go on and on and on. And we look at this story, and, and we're not rattled by it. But think about it if you were Joseph. And God, you could see through the Scriptures as you look back, God was with Joseph the whole time. But what about your life and your story right now? We all have challenges. Medical or emotional, mental or relational or financial or occupational challenges in our life? Is God still ruling over the challenges that I'm facing today? Even when I can't see what the next chapter is going to be. How can you and I know that whatever comes my way today, that God is out in front? The answer is that God is out in front of me because He calls the shots. And he's the one I follow. And if I'm following God, by definition, he's out in front. So how do we live in the land, in a world that sometimes feels like a war zone? Number one, know the enemy. Be crystal clear on who the enemy is in your life. Number two, know who's in charge. And the last point here is follow the one who's in charge. I've got to put my orders... His orders above my orders. And that's what the midwives did. You know, Shipra and Pua. They said, we fear God. That's what the scripture said twice. We follow the things of God rather than what's going to save our own bacon. Right? Now, I know that my desires is always to sort of save my bacon. To have a better life for me. According to what I think is best for me. And I, and I think it, it would have been easier for those midwives to follow Pharaoh in that moment than to disobey Pharaoh and follow God. But they followed God, and God worked it out. And then God gave them a blessing. We need to choose to obey God rather than living out your own life and your own dreams. I think a question that comes up all the time with, with this passage is Dean the midwives seem to lie to Pharaoh and God bless them how does that happen 
They lied, and God blessed them. Well, what happened is they lied, and God blessed them. I have no other answer to that except for what we read there. You always choose Almighty God above everything else. Always. I pursue obedience by the Word of God. So how do I live? In a world as the people of God? Number one, I need to know who the enemy is, and it's not people. Number two, I need to know who's in charge. And number three, I need to follow the one who's in charge. Amen?